Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here today with James Ward of Salesforce to talk about modern web architecture fundamentals. How's it going today, James? Going great. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So there are a whole wealth of hosting options out there today. There's Heroku, DigitalOcean, Rackspace, AWS, on and on and on. Can you describe to us the high-level differences between these services? Yeah, so I I can tell my story. So I have actually started a hosting company way back when and had to manage all the infrastructure for that hosting company and you know set up servers and make sure that uh, there was good security uh, across clients and all that kind of stuff. So I actually ran a, a, like the first Java hosting company that there was called Want Java back in the day. So I've been through that whole kind of spectrum of managing servers and networks and being a hosting provider. Then once I left that company, I had my own servers that I managed that I ran all, all of my stuff on and, you know, hard drives would go out in the middle of the night and I'd have to go down to the data center and fix hard drives. And it was actually quite a bit of work to just keep some servers running. And so then I moved everything to Amazon Web Services and that was great because I didn't have to fix any hard drives, but I still had to deal with actually managing the operating systems and managing everything actually running on top of the virtualized hardware. Then after running on Amazon for a little while, I ended up going to Heroku. And Heroku's been great because I've got, I don't know, a hundred different apps on Heroku for all my different uh, sample apps and, and blog and all that kind of stuff. And it really requires just about no management to make sure that those things are up and running. So, you know, when there's like the code bleed vulnerability that everyone has to scramble for and, and deal with, I had to do nothing to deal with that. So yeah, so that's been my kind of progression through those different services and and I'm certainly loving Heroku. I'm an enthusiastic uh, user of Heroku because I don't want to be a sysadmin anymore, you know. I was a sysadmin for many years and and so I'm I'm glad that someone else is wearing the pager now and and dealing with those issues uh, so that I don't have to. So in in terms of of other options, you know, I'm not real familiar with many of the other options out there. Interesting to note, though, Heroku actually runs on top of Amazon, so it really provides this kind of managed tier and a really nice developer experience on top of Amazon. So underneath it all, it's it's still Amazon as the infrastructure provider. You know, it's funny. Um, your history obviously goes much farther back than mine does, but you know, I came into technology in 2010, I think, 2009, 2010. And when I was starting my first startup, I think my dad actually was like, he was really excited for me and trying to help, but obviously didn't know how to. And he kept trying to like get me to buy a physical server and like put it in my apartment. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to explain to him like, that's not really how <laughs> that's this works. That's not how things are done anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean, it's funny that we've come as far as we have in that amount of time that we've got all of these, you know, great like hosted or rather um, like managed platforms like Heroku that you're talking about. We've got the ability to spin up multiple different machines with multiple different stacks all over the place. Actually, I think the Talking Code podcast is done on a 
like five dollar digital ocean droplet five bucks a month and i mean you couldn't have done that even back in 2010 it's just incredible yeah yeah, and then you hear those stories of of the the startups back in the day where they're wiring together computers in their garage to host their website yeah oh i know i mean that's how i started startups a number of times was to invest you know tens of thousands of dollars right up front in a bunch of hardware you know having no idea if the business would actually need or be able to support that kind of investment and today you know it's like i can just create a free heroku app and i'm good you know and so it's it's a it's such a different world it allows us all to move a lot faster than we used to be able to and and not have to have those huge upfront investments. I do miss the hardware, you know, it's super fun to like have such a tangible thing, you know, it's like, oh, there's my server, that's where the app runs, you know, I can see it and touch it. And now it's just all like in the cloud, you know, and it, it's not as much fun when it's totally intangible. But also, I don't mind not getting woken up at three in the morning anymore. Could you, uh, you mentioned uh, sysadmin earlier, could you, from a high level, explain what is a sysadmin? What do they do and like are they different from a programmer what's going on there yeah good question i started i guess my career officially as a sysadmin when i was working for a hosting company so the task that i would do was to manage the linux and solaris servers solaris is uh is sun's operating system or not oracle's operating system which is a unix based operating system for those that aren't familiar with it and so back then a lot of the servers were running on solaris now it's you know mostly linux but um but so the as a sysadmin, I'd set up new servers, make sure that the servers that, that were there were updated, and I was doing security patches on those and uh, setting up scripts to do deployments and you know just making sure that the, the lights stay on and um, on the systems and doing whatever maintenance tasks were needed on the systems. You know, Of course, there was always disk drives filling up, and so you had to deal with that kind of stuff. Uh, so that was, that was my job as a sysadmin. I don't think that job has changed too much if you're at the infrastructure level, so whether you're owning your own hardware or you're using an infrastructure provider like Amazon, you still need to, to maintain those systems. And so I did that for many years and I, I don't miss it. You know, it was a good job at the time, but I'm, I'm glad to not, not have to uh, be responsible in that way for keeping things working. So and then there's also like a network administrator, which would be responsible for the routers and the load balancers and the firewalls, that layer of the infrastructure. So I did a, a little bit of network admin stuff as well back then. But now I'll, somebody does all that stuff for me on Heroku. <laughs> What then really is the advantage behind having those people do that for you? I mean, is it a cost-saving advantage? Is it the headache that you're saving? Like, what's the primary benefit for you going off and using a managed application like Heroku versus rolling it yourself on AWS? Yeah, good question. So for me, there is a cost savings for me on Heroku because Heroku has uh, a tier of service that's basically free. They let you run as many applications at a specific tier as you want, basically for free. It's uh, the way that they do it now is your application can run for, I forget the exact number, 16 hours a day or something like that for free. And then if you go beyond that, then you pay like $7 a month or something per application. But so many of my applications are just these little demo applications and sample applications that they really aren't running 
for more than 16 hours a day, so they're free. So there, so for me, there is a cost savings. I, I don't know if in other use cases what the cost savings would be. Certainly, there's a significant investment in sysadmins and people managing servers that you don't have to pay when you're using Heroku, but I don't know how that's reflected in the actual cost of Heroku. I'm sure somebody has broken all that down before. So for me, I'd say cost savings, but I'm, I'm kind of a, a lightweight user in a way. So then on the, the really the, the driving reason for me with Heroku is all about just not having the headache of, of having to manage the actual infrastructure. So the fact that I can just deploy an application and I don't have to worry about heartbleed vulnerabilities. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. I just think about my application. That's really the primary reason for me and why I've been using Heroku and loving it so much is I just don't have to think about so much. Somebody's dealing with with all the infrastructure and I can just focus on my app. And that allows me to move quickly, allows me to not be woken up at three in the morning to deal with some outage. All that stuff is, is handled for me. Okay, so Rackspace and AWS, they're pretty bare bones. Um, and Heroku looks like it takes care of a lot of infrastructure for you. Could you give some examples of some things that Heroku does for you that a lower level server wouldn't? Yeah, so when I was on Amazon, there were occasionally times where my virtual server on Amazon would just basically go away. <laughs> and you'd get a nice uh, email from Amazon saying, like, uh, uh, sorry, your your virtual server is gone. Have fun. <laughs> so then you'd have to, to deal with that. And with Heroku, that layer of service is taken care of for you by Heroku. So when I have an app running on Heroku, Heroku is making sure that there's an actual virtual server underneath it all that's running that application. And if that virtual server dies, they're going to start it up, a new one up automatically for me and make sure that my application keeps running. They even watch the application to make sure that the application is actually running. So my process is actually running. And if my process stops running, then Heroku automatically restarts that process for me. So they've just put in this layer of, of management that you don't get on the raw infrastructure providers. Now, Amazon does have some services that are higher level that do provide a higher level of service than their just like raw EC2 service. So there, there certainly are a lot of options out there for the Heroku-like service. So it's, it's, it, that part's certainly not unique to Heroku. You know, it's funny that you talk about being up in the middle of the night having to deal with some of these things because for me, um, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm an officer in the Army National Guard and I'm actually at Signal School right now. And Signal Core basically does all of the network infrastructure for the Army. And, you know, I was a platoon leader for eight months before even coming to Signal School, which is a little weird, admittedly, that I was out in the field working with soldiers before being trained on my job. But, you know, you go out there and we literally to do the network infrastructure management that we needed to do to keep the servers up because we literally have vehicles with servers in them and keep things going. Uh, in some of the vehicles, we have a 24-hour op cycle where you continually cycle people in to just keep everything up and make sure that comms are still going. And, you know, realistically, at a startup, that's basically what you'd have to be doing. That's what Heroku and those places are doing for you. And that's untenable for most people, especially when your needs are focused elsewhere. So I'm a really big advocate for things like this, just because those are very, very painful nights if you're up 
at all hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A funny story. When I was doing the sysadmin hosting work back in the day, we had one database system that was particularly flaky and was going down a lot. And so I got so used to my pager going off in the middle of the night that my pager on the loudest level wouldn't actually wake me up anymore. And oh. so what I so I, so my my manager and I we we came up with a solution which was to open up the pager, solder onto the speaker cable, a little like microphone out jack. And so then I would plug my pager into my stereo system, like audio <laughs> in. And so then I could crank up my speakers on my stereo system. And when my pager would go off, it would just like shake the whole house. And so that was our solution for me, uh, getting so used to my pager going off in the middle of the night that I, we had to fix it, right? So that was... I. I don't miss those days at all. <laughs> well, would you recommend that strategy to startups of today? No, definitely not. You know, it's, <laughs> it just seems, Get it just seems crazy, right? right? It just seems crazy that somebody somewhere has to do it. And I'm glad that that's not me. You know, somebody, at Heroku, there's a lot of people wearing pagers or, you know, now we just use our cell phones. But I'm glad that there are people at Heroku doing that. And I'm glad it's not me. <laughs> yeah, I agree 100%. <laughs> Okay, so so given all of these different choices that we have out there, how do you think about where to host your application at this point? Yeah, so for me, there's a few things that I really like about Heroku that I'll run through, and I, you know, I haven't it's been so long since I made the decision to go to Heroku that I haven't really gone and looked around to see how these things vary from different platforms. But here's what I would look for if I were looking around at different options today. Number one is, do I have a way to not get locked into the platform? There's definitely platforms out there that have you create an application that works only on their platform. So an example of this is like Google App Engine. Google App Engine has a specific way that you build an application to run on Google App Engine. And not always, but sometimes that way can be make your application not portable to another provider. So that's actually one of the core values of Heroku is that there is no lock-in in Heroku. I can take in my application I run on Heroku and in 10 minutes I could move it anywhere else. So that's you know kind of scary for Heroku that they really have to be best and they have to be awesome and be priced well or else you can really easily move. So that's that's kind of scary. But for me as a consumer, I think that that's crucial to not get locked into a vendor. So I think say that that's that's one really important characteristic. The next one would be does the platform support really anything that I would want to be able to run? So Heroku is has an open system called build packs that allow you to basically run any technology you want to run on Heroku. So I can run Java, Scala, PHP, Ruby, Python, Node.js, um, really Go. There's there's so many different languages that I can run on Heroku, and that's actually important for me because you know I used to do Java, now I do mostly Scala, but sometimes I do some Python, sometimes I do some Node.js. I like to do it all, and it's nice to be able to run all of that stuff in one place and, and have all of my applications in one place. So that, that's probably the second most important thing for me is, is it super easy to choose a technology that I want to use on the, on the platform. 
And then the the last one that I'll highlight, there's probably a whole lot longer list, but I'll keep it to three, is I now have a deployment pipeline that I use. Uh, A deployment pipeline is how do I get from I'm writing code on my local machine. How do I get that code to a production machine? And uh, the kind of new awesome way to do this is through something called continuous delivery. And continuous delivery allows me to test and ship changes to production with very little friction. So on Heroku supports a continuous delivery pipeline that can vary from just pushing my code directly to Heroku uh, using Git push Heroku master all the way to I'm going to push my code to GitHub and then that's going to kick off a continuous integration testing cycle that will test and verify my changes and then once those changes have been tested and verified then deploy those changes to an app on Heroku and so for more critical changes I'll go through my whole tested continuous integration pipeline and for just you know real quick and easy, very low-risk changes. I'll just push them directly to Heroku. So it's nice to be able to have that flexibility in in the deployment architecture. So that's probably my third most important thing that I would look for. So that was we a lot. A, <laughs> we have an episode with CodeShip earlier, so you guys can check that out if you want to. You spoke about making sure you don't get locked into a particular server stack. Why might one want to switch between servers? Yeah, that's a good question. So in my progression of going from my own infrastructure to Amazon Web Services to Heroku, it was actually incredibly easy to move the actual application from those different types of, of infrastructure. And change is inevitable. And today I love Heroku and I expect still loving and using Heroku in, in 10 years. But who knows what the future holds, right? And so it could be that there becomes an even higher level of service, a higher level of of abstraction away from infrastructure that somebody else invents. And I want to decide to take my application to that. It'd be great if I could take my existing application without any changes and move it to that new thing. Or let's say that for some crazy reason, Heroku has like a massive downtime. Right, they're managing stuff, and something just goes really wrong, which is you know possible. Not, um, I think it's unlikely, but possible. And so let's say that that happens, and I'm like, all right, I you know I can't, I just can't be down, so I need to move my application to somewhere else. It'd be great if I could just take my application as it is, move it to a new provider, and be done with it. And so that's why that portability and not being locked in is crucial. It's just just having the security that I'm not beholden to any particular provider. I'm also really glad that you mentioned the flexibility of build packs because that's something that's benefited us personally. So we are big Ember.js users and for a long time until sort of the Ember community came together earlier this year actually and figured out sort of what the deployment pipeline that most of the community is going to use would look like. Um, There was a really popular, uh, I think it was called something like Heroku Ember CLI build pack or something like that. And, yeah. you know, it allowed me to go ahead and have a fairly complex Nginx configuration, uh, which is uh, like a, a web server. Um, and, yep. you know, being able to do a fairly complex deployment for like a front end application, right? It's not even like a server side app, but I still needed somewhere to host this. And I had, you know, a cycle that allowed me to go out 
and take the files that were put onto Heroku in the build so that they were, you know, fingerprinted accurately and push them up to S3. And, you know, as you were talking about continuous deployment, um, the same thing is exactly true where we work with Codeship and we've got that interview that we had with uh, Florian Motlick before of Codeship. And, you know, this is exactly what we do, like in our day to day is we've got applications that go up to testing. We've got, you know, some sort of other build process that needs to happen. In fact, I actually think there's a, another podcast, the Rocket Ship podcast. These guys do a very similar sort of thing where they go off and I think they actually like index some of their articles on their podcast and push that up to a search provider. And so having that flexibility to really like plug into uh, the stack really easily. And again, without very much configuration at all, you know, we're talking like we set up these projects all the time and it really doesn't take that much any longer. And that's certainly not what it was like even four or five years ago. So it's really impressive. Yeah, yeah once that yeah, build definitely. pack was released, it was just, you were just up and running immediately. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, the build packs are, are awesome. There's just so much you can do with them and it's all open, right? So it's, it's a, it's a great ecosystem. Uh, I created my first build pack recently and it was incredibly easy. It was just some scripting that would take a git push of, I think this was for like a reveal JS presentation or something like that and turn it into an executable app on Heroku. And you know, it's, it's amazing to have that kind of flexibility. And, and then like you said, have the flexibility and the deployment pipeline as well. Codeship is, is a phenomenal tool and, and I've plugged that into my continuous delivery pipeline and it just works and it's it makes everything so easy and it allows me to reduce risks of doing deployment and do deployments much more much more often which is great can deliver faster yeah absolutely so you know we've seen a rise in some of these container technologies like docker for example what are these and why do they matter how do they fit into the ecosystem that we've seen evolving Docker containers are kind of like the new lightweight virtualization technology. And the primary goal, I think, of, of these containers is to make it so you can have a consistent environment for an application and be able to reproduce that environment very easily. And this is something that Heroku taught me to do and something that we've been doing on Heroku for a long time is make a way so that anyone whether it's a person who's a developer on a system or a continuous integration system or a production system, make it so an environment can be reproduced in the same way that it's reproduced anywhere else so that you have consistency across all the different environments, whether those are dev, staging, CI, production, right? And Docker really makes that concept in some ways much more attainable than it was before. So so an example of this is I do a lot of JVM based apps and there's a, a build tool or a number of build tools for the JVM like let's say Maven and so there's one level of consistent reproduction of, a, of an environment that I can get from a build tool like Maven or for in the Node ecosystem like NPM is that I can get all of my dependencies consistently whenever I create a new environment. And that's good. That's one level of reproducibility of environment. But there's another, another level of reproducibility of an environment, which is what about the next level down of dependencies, which would be like in the, in the Java world, what JVM version am I using, right? 
right? And then the next layer down is what system libraries am I tied to? Because all these things can have subtle differences that can make it so that a bug can crop up in one environment and not in another environment. And that's really what we're trying to avoid is, is I want to make sure that I have total consistency across all my different environments. And Docker takes that all the way down to like the virtualization layer so that from the virtualization layer up, I have consistency in an environment. So very similar to what we've been doing for a long time with Heroku, but even a lower, lower level down. Heroku now does support Docker. So if you want to deploy a Docker file to Heroku, you can do that. And, and that's a great way to do it. It definitely helps you to have that more consistent deployment than just the build packs. The build packs help you to have one level of consistency. Docker helps you to have uh, a deeper level of consistency. So we've we've come a long way since the early days of the internet where you had servers in your basement hosting websites and you spoke about virtualization. Could you explain from a high level how what virtualization is? Yeah, so back in the the old days when we created a system, we would have the hardware We'd have an operating system on the hardware, and then we would run an op- application directly on that operating system. One of the challenges with that approach is the resources that my application needs are now directly tied to the resources that actual hardware provides. And so one of the things that virtualization tries to do is make it so that I can dynamically allocate and manage and provision resources for different applications. So it puts a layer on top of that operating system that's hooked directly to the the hardware, where now I can have sub-operating systems, basically, or pieces of operating systems that then get their own specific resource allocations. And then another reason for this is uh, what Salesforce would call like multi-tenancy, is I've got different tenants sharing one actual resource. And so by going with virtualization, I can get a secure barrier between those different tenants and a resource barrier. So there's in virtualization, there's a common problem where you can have a noisy neighbor where there's one tenant is hogging all the resources. And so the other tenants aren't able to get what they need or have the resources that they should need. And so good virtualization deals with the security, it deals with the resource constraints, deals with all that. There's been you know, tons of different virtualization technologies over the years to do exactly this, but that's kind of the meat of it. You mentioned in a post of yours recently that you think that app servers are fading away. Can you explain what exactly you mean by that? Yeah, and this one's tricky because in the kind of pre-Docker days, uh, we actually called app servers containers. So back in like the early 2000s, when we talked about containers, we were actually talking about an app server as a container. So there's some confusing terminology here. So what I was referring to was back in primarily the Java EE Enterprise Edition days, we would use application servers as a kind of monolithic environment to deploy a bunch of applications into. So it was, it was kind of virtualization 
at the application tier instead of at like the operating system tier in some ways. And these app servers would provide a bunch of common services like uh, a naming um, lookup service, provide shared connection pools for databases. It would provide, I don't know, all sorts of other, other services in the container. So the idea was that your container provides all this stuff and then you just drop a little application into the container and then that application can access all those different services. So that's a very monolithic approach Approach. There's certainly some upsides to this approach. I'm not going to say that it's all bad. But what's been happening over the last few years is that, especially the enterprise community that's built these monolithic app server-based apps, has been really trying to decompose the app server down into individual services and then run those independently. And one of the terms for this is microservices. So microservices is one approach to be able to decompose these different applications out into their own independent services. So for instance, in the old days, we would have our app server. Our app server would provide a cache service and that cache service would be shared by a bunch of different applications. And this would all be in one process. And so if that one process went down, like it took everything with it, right? And so now what we do instead is we take that cache service and we provision it as a standalone cloud-based service. And we can use like there's memcache providers for this. You could use Redis. There's all sorts of different providers that basically provide a cache service in the cloud. And Heroku provides these through what Heroku calls add-ons. So you can go provision an, an add-on. Uh, so I take take my cache service, I move it out into some external service. And now I just have a micro application that doesn't have an app server. So it's it's all that it is, is a standalone application that runs mostly HTTP handling. And then if it needs a cache service, then it's going to talk back to that cache service that we provisioned for it. And now I can have as many applications as I want, all talking back to that shared cache service or maybe each talking to their own cache service, however I decide to set it up. So it, it kind of separates out all these different pieces into their own independent services that we used to bundle all together into a single monolithic app. Okay, and so these these add-ons that you're talking about, um, which we'll put in the show notes, but that's at addons.heroku.com if you want to look at that and sort of get your head around what we're talking about here. So, I mean, is that really the way to think about how these services are broken out? I mean, at least an easy way to visualize for somebody who might not really understand what you know a monolithic service would have looked like beforehand? Yeah, so the, the add-ons are a good way to think about what are the cloud services that I can just provision instantly and add to my application and start using. So you'll see in the add-on catalogs, there's ones for messaging, there's ones for data storage, there's ones for caching. There's just all sorts of different services that I can just provision and start using. So those are cloud services managed by somebody else that now I can just use. Somebody else has to worry about their uptime and you know, making sure that they don't go down and they have backups and all that kind of stuff. And now I just write my app and I use those services. So an example of this is I have a little side project called WebJars. And WebJars.org, it is a microservice application that is composed of, I think today, maybe like five different actual services underneath it. One of those is a memcache service because I've got some data that I'm reading that I can't just read as often as a user 
wants to to see it. I can't hit that backend service that often. And so I have a caching service that allows me to cache that data. And so I use that memcache add-on and uh, store a cache of that data in memcache. And now whenever somebody comes to webjars.org and they get the list of webjars, that data is actually coming out of that memcache service, which is super fast, super easy to use, super lightweight. And so that's just one of the services that ends up providing the whole webjar org experience and it's all without an app server i've decomposed all the pieces that i would have lumped together into a single deployment or into a single app and i've decomposed that now into like five or six different apps and services so we've gotten into an argument recently i think with technologists working for a client that we were working with and um, you know this doesn't happen infrequently i'd say uh where you know they're kind of used to this uh, notion of rolling everything yourself, sort of being fully in charge and control of everything that's built. And I, I can't remember precisely what the service was. Do you remember Venkat? It was Sol- it was Solar, I believe. Okay, yeah, it was WebSolar, right? Yeah, WebSolar. Yeah, I th- so I think, you know, obviously you come down pretty heavy on the side of if you're a startup and you're small, maybe using something like Heroku is a good way to save on some of these costs. Let people who are really, really good at doing these things do them for you. Let them manage the platform. But, you know, in terms of all these add-ons, all these other things, do you agree that that should be the way that startups should think about this? Or, you know, is it a little bit more subtle of an issue than that? Yeah, I think there's always going to be exceptions where for some reason or another, and we can always probably come up with with reasons to roll it on our own or not use a service provider. Most of the time, I'd say, though, just use the service. You know, yeah, they may not be able to keep it up 100% of the time, but I can tell you that like in the case of solar, like I'll bet that the solar add-ons that exist on the Heroku add-on system, I'll bet that those people are a whole lot better at keeping solar up and running than I would be at keeping solar up and running. And we kind of tend to think that, oh, it's easy, you know, and, and I could keep solar up and running. But I've been doing this, this kind of work for a long time. And I can tell you that keeping anything running is hard. And I would much rather let someone else who is an expert in that and focused on just that do it for me. Obviously, there's going to be exceptions where that doesn't work, but one of those would be um, sometimes people have have very specific requirements around data residency and where data actually lives, like it's it, where in the world that data actually is, and who can have actual physical access to it, what legal systems can gain access to that data, and so sometimes there is requirements, uh, legal requirements that would prevent you from using a service provider. So that would be one exception that I could think of where there may not be a way around that one. In that case, you may have to just do it yourself. I mean, which is why you've got things like GovCloud that are out there, you know, trying to make, for example, more HIPAA compliant software a little bit easier to build in the cloud. I think the Army recently was talking to Amazon and like a couple other cloud providers about how to design data centers in a way that the military can use and yet still have it be virtualized and managed by those companies rather than you know, the military itself taking on the burden of doing all that management, which I think is really interesting. Yep. But, you know, I think it's really interesting talking about these specific providers, the way that you said, we tend to think that it's easy to run these production systems ourselves. But, you know, I think a lot of that often comes from the fact that, 
you know, as full stack developers become more common and people are able to wrap their heads around all the technology that you're using, it seems because it's really easy to set up and provision some of these services that it's going to be really easy to go ahead and manage them later on. Uh, do you feel like that's that false confidence is what's getting people to think that, you know, it's not going to be a problem. I'll have no issue managing it. Yeah, that's a really good point is because I set it up on my laptop in five minutes, that means that I could run a production system. And I think that it's easy to think that. But then after you actually have to manage one of these production systems for a while, you realize that a lot of times it's really hard like to keep things running efficiently, to keep disks from filling up, to be able to scale to the demands that are on you, to be able to handle disaster recovery, failover, like all these, you start adding up the number of things that you have to do to keep a high quality of service. And I would much rather let somebody who that's their full-time job deal with that. And I just want to write code and deploy my app, <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, is that your startup's like primary focus? You know, is that what you're in? I mean, again, I think I've said this, I don't even know how many times even on this podcast, but is that what you are out there making money to do? Unless you're Heroku, I just can't see how it is. Yeah, and there's the opportunity cost of time you're spending managing these servers and installing Solar is time you're not spending building your app and making your customers happy. Exactly right. So there's this there's there's this tension always when you're when you're a startup and you're building an app, and that is making something scalable. You know, putting time in to make it scalable versus you know deferring that cost. And how can you? When should you begin thinking about the scalability of an app? I, I think I have a slightly skewed perspective on this. <laughs> so as a developer who is who's written apps on the JVM for a number of years and now is starting to write some Node.js applications, the technology that I have always used would have to be like monumentally successful to hit scalability issues because the technology choices that I've made lend themselves to scaling to a point where when you get there, you could certainly afford to deal with your scalability challenges, right? And what I'm kind of poking a little bit at here is Ruby in particular. Ruby, uh, and this is changing with Ruby, so it's getting better, but for a long time, scalability with Ruby was particularly painful because Ruby was single-threaded and had some issues around, around how it actually scaled inherent to Ruby. So while Ruby is great for startups and with Rails, you can just pound stuff out super quickly, the downside of that is that you don't get scalability out of the box. And so what the JVM work that I've done, JVM-based apps that I've built, and now in the Node apps that I'm building, there's just so much more ability to scale inherent in the framework that I think that if you're using one of those technologies, scalability is not something you really need to be thinking about up front. You certainly should be following best practices around around how you're architecting the application, but those best practices today are going to lead you towards great scalability anyway. So for instance, a, a best practice today with, with Node and with JVM-based technologies is don't use blocking calls. Uh, a blocking call is going to block a thread even when 
it's inactive. And this is one of the biggest hindrances to being able to, to scale well in, in modern systems. So an example is I've got webjars.org and webjars.org needs to make a call to uh, some other system, let's say Maven Central. They make a lot of web service calls to Maven Central, which is a index that we use underneath webjars.org. So that web service call that I'm making, REST call, whatever it is, there's really two ways that I could make that call. I can either do it blocking or non-blocking. The blocking way would say that when somebody comes to webjars.org and webjars.org needs to go make a request to Maven Central, I'm going to actually block a thread, block a resource until I get a response back from Maven Central. So I'm using this resource even though I'm just waiting. I'm in an idle wait state. Non-blocking and async would say, all right, I'm going to take this request and I'm going to basically put it to sleep so it's not using any resources until I get that response back from Maven Central. And then once I get that response back from Maven Central, I'm going to reallocate that resource back to it and then send the response back to the, the user. So not, if you are following the best practice pattern of the modern asynchronous system, then you're going to have so much more runway with scalability than you would if you were not doing blocking. And so certainly follow the modern best practices and architectures, and you're going to be able to scale in most cases well enough until you could afford to deal with your scalability problems. An analogy I like to use is that of a, of a restaurant or, or a fast food place where you, if you're waiting in line and you order a sandwich, blocking would almost be like, get someone to make the sandwich, but they wait for them to finish making the sandwich before they take the next order. That line would take forever to get through. Versus if they had just, you know, asked them to make the sandwich and continued on to serving the next person. Yeah. Where this really matters is when you have multiple resources that you can allocate. So if there's only one person making a sandwich, then you're not going to get any better scalability if you could take orders faster, right? Because you still only got one person making a sandwich. But in modern systems, we now have servers that have 64 cores on them, 128 cores on them, right? And so we have the ability to parallelize much more than we used to. And that's why non-blocking has become really important is because now we can actually have a ton of people making sandwiches at once. So you're absolutely right. Like, Don't block taking more orders when you could have 10 people making sandwiches. Fill up that queue, you know, take all the orders you can and then partition them out to all the sandwich makers, right? And and that would be a whole lot more efficient way to go. You know, you, you mentioned uh, best practices earlier too when talking about scalability. And I think that's something that often gets overlooked. And so, I mean, we're in the Ruby and Rails community and I'd say in that community, unfortunately, it's overlooked for beginners and intermediate folks more than it really should be. I think part of that, well, I don't really know why it is, but you know, you're, you you see that with M plus one queries, for example, you know, really simple uh, mistakes that people make. Uh, M plus one is literally where you go out and you make some sort of query and then for each to a database, and then you would literally add on additional calls for each uh, relationship that you'd have in there rather than, you know, a single call that includes all the data that you actually need for that. And that optimization really isn't that difficult to do. It doesn't take that much time, but most people don't understand it the first time that they encounter it. And they, as a result, they don't end up writing it that way to begin with um, because they simply haven't come across it somehow. And, you know, maybe that's just because uh, most applications don't reach scale. Most application developers, therefore, 
don't end up feeling the pain of having to deal with that sort of scale. But I certainly have. And that's one thing that I wish that people would pay more attention to in general. So yeah, so when you have the experience of having to build scalable systems, then you kind of know next time around what you should pay attention to when you're getting started. And I think that you're you're right that we haven't done a good job as a developer community at training people on those best practices and things that we've learned and so that it just becomes ingrained into what we do. Another common example is static asset serving. It's like, yes, I can serve static assets from my web app server, but it's a whole lot more efficient to put those static assets on a CDN, on CloudFront, S3, right? Put them somewhere else and let something that specializes in global distribution of content and specializes in serving static content, let something else do that and then make the calls back to my app server be only the dynamic data-related call. And so that's that's an optimization that really everyone can very easily do and, and really should do for any production app that they ship, um, especially for shared libraries, right? There's no reason you should be like hosting jQuery.js on your own app server. That just is, is crazy today, right? And, and so, yeah, I think we needed to make those practices much more, more common across all the different, different spectrums of developers. Yeah, you know, there's uh, in in Ruby, there's uh, like Ruby koans. Like, I really wish that uh, which are just kind of nice little ways to learn through testing, through like test driven development, the way to do some basic Ruby language syntax, common libraries. I wish that there was something like that, you know, in Rails for doing best practices, you know, or even just like application challenges where somebody's built something that isn't working properly. You know, maybe has like a you know, 20 second return time and you have to figure out what's going on because you don't want to be figuring that out when it's a production system for a business that you're trying to make money with, right? You want to figure that out when you're just getting the hang of how do I build these applications, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, exactly. Something else that you mentioned too is just, again, taking a Ruby heavy slant here, but, you know, I've had to deal with a lot of the scalability challenges that you mentioned, dealing with memory creep and trying to reduce the costs that I have of the servers that I have allocated. And, you know, I haven't seen a lot of information out there on how to handle multi-threading in Ruby applications. So, you know, I don't know if that's, that's kind of a call to anyone uh, listening. And also to, you know, Heroku is a company that obviously has a really strong Ruby community behind them that, it would be great to get more direction on the right way to do multi-threading in uh, in Ruby. I think I read something recently that Ruby had had just kind of added threading into their their core library um, or core core uh, runtime, and I think that'll be great for Ruby. It's it's certainly something that Ruby needs to stay modern. Right now, I see a lot of people leaving Ruby and going to Go and Node because of the multi-threading aspect. And so hopefully the Ruby community can address that and, and keep people there by adding that capability. But multi-threading is really hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think even with it, you know, built in, uh, it's still really difficult to do it, you know, in Rails. I mean, especially there's just a lot of cases where, you know, very counterintuitive things end up happening uh, because you're just not familiar with the way that it works. And so that really requires a kind of like a large scale cultural change in the way that 
applications get written, which is hard. I mean, that's going to be fundamentally harder to do than just a single person figuring out how to uh, write that way. Yeah, and nice thing about Node community is that asynchronous uh, is just really baked into the culture. In the Java community, asynchronous is not. And even though Java has threads, asynchronous in the whole Java ecosystem is a pretty new thing. And so in, in some ways, the Java ecosystem has the same challenge of getting their community to adopt and understand asynchronous stuff uh, and the, getting the libraries to use it. This sounds like the same challenge that the Ruby community has right now. And I think that that's one reason why Node is doing so well is it from the get-go has been asynchronous so, you know all the libraries are asynchronous and the way that developers think is asynchronous and the way that people write code and document things is all asynchronous so so it's it's really baked in and that that's definitely an advantage for the node community so you talked earlier about about continuous deployment and one thing you say is app servers should be stateless could you explain what you mean by stateless yeah. So this is going to use some some Java isms, um, which I think are are also common in in uh, the Ruby and uh, Rails world, but maybe not. So um, so in the the Java ecosystem, in our our web container web programming model that's most common in the Java ecosystem, there is a session state that uses a cookie to across requests identify a user and the programmer can put data into that session space that's specific to a specific user session and so now i have data that's in memory on a server and so there's two primary challenges with with this approach one is that if I need two servers, then how do I deal with when one request goes to one server and the next request goes to the other server? And so one of the ways that the Java ecosystem dealt with this in particular was to use server affinity where I actually pin a user to a particular server. So that means that every request that is coming in from a particular user goes to the same server, so they always get their same session object. That was one way to deal with it. It's horrible for many reasons you can't scale you can't if that server dies you lose all the sessions it's just bad so uh so another way that people would deal with this is that they would have technology to replicate that session data across all the different web servers and so that no matter which server you come to you're going to get the same session but there's actually a lot of overhead in doing that replication because that means that Every single request that comes into a server, if that request changes the session, I now need to replicate that change across every single server that I have, which can be incredibly taxing on a system to, to do it that way. So the more modern architecture for this... Oh, and then oh, there's one other problem with, with this approach is... Whenever I need to deploy a change to a system, I have to take down all my servers, so I lose all of my session state whenever this happens. And that just, you know, you can't get to like GitHub levels of of deployment where they're doing like 200 deploys a day or whatever it is. You can't be destroying 
sessions, everyone's sessions 200 times a day and forcing everyone to log back in and refresh caches. Like, obviously that just would not work, right? And so the simple solution is we take our session data and we don't put it in memory in the app server. We put it into an external session data store. And so you can do this now in, in the Java world with memcache. So you can actually take what used to be the in-memory session and move that out into an external memcache system or Mongo system or you know all sorts of different data stores that you can use for that. But now I can I don't have to worry anymore about where the requests go because when it goes to get that session, it's going out to the external memcache system. And then second, I can update these servers and restart them as often as I want, and it's not going to affect the session data. The downside of this approach is that now I am taking a call for data that would take, you know, less than a millisecond to get some some data because it was in memory. And I'm now making that take, I don't know, let's say 10 milliseconds to get that data from an external system because there's a network call involved. There's serialization and deserialization of that data involved. So there is more overhead to this. My contention has been that most of the time that overhead is ultimately less than the overhead of doing something crazy like session and replication, but maybe that's true in some scenarios and not others. So that's been the way that, that we've dealt with this. And now we have the ability to deploy our app as often as we want, and we don't have to worry about losing that user session data. So make sure that I understand this properly. You have, instead of storing the data, user's data on each server, you have that stored separately. So whether you ask server A or server B for that information, they're going off and just asking this one central database or whatever you would call it for that information. So it's all in one place. That's exactly right. Yep. Okay. You could certainly shard that. So if you wanted to say, all right, users that, uh, one way to shard it would be if their name starts with an A, then you're going to talk to this server. And if their name starts with a B, you're going to talk to the server. Like that would be one really simple way to shard it. You know, you could shard in all sorts of, of different ways. But So it doesn't have to be a single central server, but the idea is that it's an externalized server is the key. Yeah, I mean, this gets even more difficult when you start dealing with a world where you've got API backend servers and multiple different front ends and when you get away from these monolithic apps that were like Rails only and everything is only ever in the Rails app and now we've got Ember front ends or Backbone front ends and iOS and Android, I mean, that'd be a nightmare to try and contain all of that uh, session data in one space. It just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, James, this has been uh, an excellent conversation. Can you let us know where we can keep up with you online? Yeah, sure. So on Twitter, I'm underscore James Ward. And on GitHub, I'm James Ward. And my blog is jamesward.com. So definitely would love to hear from your listeners online and, and hear what you think. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll put uh, links to all those in the show notes. So again, thank you so much. This has been excellent. Um, hope to have you on again soon. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.